Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen, and the gross transaction on UTXCOL is $30 billion with the debt added in all in. It's a rather sizable transaction. He has a sizable reputation uh, in international relations and its linkage into our military affairs. Admiral James Stravitas, he is, of course, dean of the Fletcher School, Tufts University. Admiral Stravitas joining us on our phone lines. Admiral Stravitas, uh, Mr. Keegan, John Keegan, at the end of his wonderful book, The Face of Battle, writes a small set of paragraphs on the abolition of battle. We're always fighting the last Korean War. What's the risk here of us fighting Korean battles and wars of another place and time? Unfortunately, Tom, I would say that the percentage chance of a war on the Korean Peninsula has just risen considerably. Now, it's a small baseline. So if we were looking at a 5% chance of active war, I think it's now doubled to 10%. And I think that's because we have crossed a threshold with the demonstrable capability of a hydrogen bomb on the part of a highly unpredictable young leader. So um, the chances of a new war in that peninsula, unfortunately, are increasing. But our memory, particularly for those of us of a certain vintage, is John Glenn or Ted Williams flying sorties over North (laughs) Korea. That's ancient history. What does a new military set of events look like on the Korean peninsula? Well, it'll start the good old-fashioned way, which will be a massive artillery barrage, which will probably kill 500,000 people in the vicinity of Seoul coming from North Korea. But from that point forward, Tom, it'll look very much 21st century. You'll see unmanned vehicles used extensively. There'll be a huge cyber piece of this. Special operations will be moving all over that peninsula, and there'll be a, a, a large long-range strike package coming from uh, our heavy bombers in Guam and probably three or four aircraft carriers. All in all, not a pretty sight. It'll be a a mix of uh, 1950s Korea, uh, but much more uh, 21st century, fewer troops on the ground. That'll be the big distinction. Uh, good morning, Mr. Cheerful. I don't even want to see that at all. Uh, uh, but the, None the, of us do. The kind of question that, that, that arises, though, is since, given what we're talking about, does either side use nuclear weapons, uh, tactical or otherwise? That's the huge question. And that when I mentioned opening an artillery barrage against Seoul from the north, the temptation on the part of the uh, U.S. forces will be to use tactical nuclear weapons to prevent that. Kim Jong-un, on the other hand, will be tempted to use his small arsenal, small being perhaps 20 uh, nuclear devices, if he feels the regime is under uh, extreme threat. So I'd say even within the small chances of an actual conflict on the peninsula, the chances of nuclear use are even lower. But none of it is negligible, and that's why we need to put even more effort into uh, massive sanctions, which could include targeted sanctions against uh, Chinese companies doing 
business in North Korea to get them in the game to really choke back Kim Jong-un. Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador mm-hmm. to Russia, who is now out at Stanford, had a very interesting piece over the weekend in Medium. I miss uh, com. Uh, I'll, I commend it to you, Tom, where he says um, f- the first thing we need to do is figure out what we want from the North Koreans, that our policy is kind of all over the place. Some people want them to give up nukes. Some people want them to freeze their nuke program. Some people mm-hmm. want them to, you know, surrender completely. Um, and then he says what we should focus on is getting them to freeze their uh, nuclear mm-hmm. program. And he thinks that's achievable. Um, I, I think uh, he is correct in the idea of freezing the nuclear program of North Korea. I think there is zero chance North Korea, Kim Jong-un specifically, will give up nuclear weapons voluntarily, having watched what happened in his mind to Gaddafi, what happened to Ukraine, what happened uh, to to uh, Saddam Hussein when they all gave up weapons of mass destruction. So a zero chance of getting rid of them. I think a possibility of uh, uh, obtaining a freeze, it's going to require a massive effort from the Chinese to get to that point. And if you're just joining us, James Stravitas joins us. I can't say enough about his book, The Leader's Workshop. It is my book of the summer. Guess what? It's still my book of the autumn as well. Really can't say enough about the 50, 60, 70 books that are enclosed within that from smart, smart people, including the Secretary of uh, Defense. Also, Sea Power Out, which has a little bit to do with where we are right now. The chapter on the Pacific uh, will inform. Uh, Admiral Stravitas, when I look at this, I guess, as I mentioned to Mike McKee, I was sort of saying, where was the Secretary of State this weekend? I Uh, mean, I'm trying to think of other Secretaries of State who would show the flag, per se. Uh, Am I right on that? Where is uh, Mr. Tillerson? You're totally right. And, you know, show the flag would be great. I'd, I'd settle for just a statement from, from Foggy Bottom. It's, it's incomprehensible. And frankly, it, all of the warfighting side, including General Mattis, say, hey, we need diplomacy. That screams for a secretary of state to stand up and get counted. And, and just at, at a minimum, um, we need to spend a lot more time talking to our allies in South Korea, not criticizing, right. them, not talk about breaking the, the trade deal with them right now. That's where someone like Tillerson needs to be weighing in, and he is missing an action. Is Ambassador Haley of the United Nations auditioning for the part? Uh, she's got my vote. Uh, she has really, of all the people in the national security piece on the team, uh, she stands out to me with her independence, with her uh, articulate voice. And, and all credit to her, she had no experience in diplomacy or foreign policy, but she has stepped up and I think is doing a terrific job. Now, this morning we got indications from the Chinese and the Russians that it uh, didn't matter what Nikki Haley says. They're not on board with stronger sanctions. Uh <laughs> How do we persuade them? What's the best interest of Russia, the best interest of China? How is it best served? You know, what what argument do we make? I think you have two principal arguments. Um, One is, let's call it the dog on the leash argument. And if you think of Kim Jong-un as a highly aggressive attack dog, um, there is a leash and China holds that leash. And we need to convince China that if China lets that dog actually bite somebody, we're going to kill it. Uh, so there's the yeah. you're going to lose your dog argument. And the second one is global economy argument. Um, it, this is trending towards something that will 
crack the global economy, particularly in East Asia, if we have a massive war in that peninsula, and you'll get flooded with refugees. So I think there are two pretty salient arguments. I think what's slowing China down is the fact that the uh, People's Congress is not until the 19th of October, until after that, when Xi consolidates power, don't look for movement from China. I just put out, uh, it's a photo, which I'm sure you know, you may have it hanging in your office, of one John Glenn and Ted Williams sitting at a table with cups of coffee in Korea. And they got their leather yep. flight jackets on in, 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 in that. Uh, th- that's, it's a remarkable photo. Are our pilots today younger than they used to be? Um, our pilots are very young. Um, they are younger than they were in Korea, Tom. And the reason is, in Korea, we simply went back and got veterans coming From out World of World War II. War II. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why they tend to look a little older, act a little older. They just put the pack on and went back to war. Uh, today, our pilots, the, the young men and women who will be flying these fighters and bombers, uh, average age, probably 24, 25. I don't think, Amer- are- Mike, I don't think Americans know this. What's the average age on the deck of an aircraft carrier? Admiral, I've been screaming about this for years. The kids landing these planes are like 19, right? 19, 19 and a half years That's old. And they are conducting the most complex operation that a human mind can imagine. Okay. With- How can we tell a 19-year-old kid landing that plane with you flying it that he can't have a beer in North Carolina. <laughs> Would someone explain this to me? There is no explanation. <laughs> Thank you. In fact, I think we, we have gotten that one wrong. And, of course, it was 18 when you and I were back in college, and somehow it drifted up to 21. Big yeah. mistake. That ought to, well, that, that was because my you and Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And our track too. record led directly <laughs> yeah, exactly. to you. Well, Admiral, thank you so we much. James, James Trevino. We need a change in, in surveillance policy to make kidnapping legal so we could uh, bring the Admiral here and keep him for three hours. Yeah, She's Mr. So Kimmett to join us as well. We're strong on surveillance today with good experts for you. Michael, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, Mr. Bell of Washington. Well, Steve Bell has been uh, around Washington for years and years and years. Used Millard Fillmore the, uh, or Grant? It was the, Grant. Uh, budget Committee, Senate Budget Committee. Worked for, uh, remember Pete Domenici from yes. the great state of New Mexico? Um, and he knows, he was there. Uh, I don't want to make you sound old, Steve, but you you were, like Tom and I, around for the 86 tax reform efforts. And so you know uh, what is going on. This is... He is now with the Bipartisan Policy Center. He's a senior advisor there. Um, You know um, this is an incredible month with all kinds of things going on. Uh, We've got the debt limit. We've got the uh, continuing resolution. Meanwhile, tax reform, uh, the S-CHIP, which is the children's, essentially children's Medicare, national flood insurance they have to pass, which is very appropriate now. Plus, they're going to try to get Harvey money through. Uh, How do you get all that done on Capitol Hill, as, uh, given uh, you know the various factions in various parties at this point, do get it done in the next uh, twelve to fifteen working days. I think what you're likely to see is a ninety-day short-term continuing resolution. That's the spend the twelve spending bills for government, probably expire at the end of December. Um, you probably will see very little progress on tax reform, and I think uh, many people are quite pessimistic about it. I think you'll see the debt bill passed fairly easily, though it's going to have to be bipartisan. I think the big uh, 
problem here, and we have to be candid about it, is this. About every two or three days, the president lobs a bomb in the form of a Twitter or a tweet, whatever it's called, and it really does disrupt a lot of things that the Congress is trying to do. I think the question really is, can the president handle all of the uncertainty on the Hill, as well as the growing tension uh, in the global uh, arena? Uh, irony, Tom. The definition of irony is uh, Steve Bell saying the president lobs a tweet, and as Steve was speaking, the president lobbed a tweet. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, Steve. This, this, from, this from Donald J. Trump. Congress, get ready to do your job, DACA. Uh, the, the Dreamers program, um, that's one more thing he's going to throw on their plate. Well, you know, we have to be honest here. He says he wants to have the, the, the economy really get sparked and, and going. Well, DACA is probably the wrong thing to do uh, to, to end, if that's what you want. The defense increase is in desperate trouble, I think, as everyone would agree. Infrastructure and uh, spending cuts, large spending cuts in domestic programs won't happen. And if you look at that, the president is looking at about an 0 for 4 or 0 for 5 kind of record on what he said his priorities were. Now, I don't think, given a recent ruling by the Senate parliamentarian, that they cannot use the so-called fast track or reconciliation after mm -hmm. the end of this month. I don't think, I don't see a way forward on taxes or any of the rest of this in December without real bipartisan uh, involvement. And right now, there is very little inclination. Yeah. Steve Bell, we've been talking about Secretary Tillerson and the geopolitics of Korea. Where does Secretary Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, where does he fit into the legislative process of tax reform? Well, he is a member of what they call the big six, um, uh, the, the two people from the uh, two senators from the uh, Senate Finance Committee, two from Ways and Means, uh, Mr. Mnuchin and his people. Uh, he's critical. But I've got to tell you the difference between in 1986 and here we are 31 years later. In 1986, President Reagan gave us a 486-page document, not including the charts and the graphs, on what he wanted and how he would do tax reform. What we have from the administration right now, essentially, is one piece of paper. And that is just going to be uh, proved to be a huge burden on the Hill as you try to get something as complicated as tax reform done. What uh, you, you say the odds are, are declining, um, and I think most people in Washington would agree with you, for tax reform. But what about the idea of tax cuts, which is a different thing? And uh, when you uh, the old um, the old line about nothing concentrates the mind like a hanging, there is an election next year for members of Congress who have nothing to show for their appearance in Washington this year. Uh, does that does that change the equation? And maybe they just do something. Oh, I think I think you've hit it. Uh, I do expect a real chance for tax cuts in the first quarter of this coming year, 2018. Uh, it's going to increase the deficit, but there aren't a lot of people left on Capitol Hill that are f afraid of yeah. big 
deficits. <laughs> well, within this, and Mike's good question, where is Steve Bell's trip point psychologically on deficit to GDP? We're at three point whatever percent, migrating towards a larger four percent deficit to GDP. Is that a big deal, or is your number five or six, or an even a grimmer number seven percent? I think for me, 6% of GDP would be considered very, very high and potentially dangerous because now you're talking about trillion-dollar annual deficits uh, to get there. And I think people don't realize as we get older, as demographics, uh, you know, works its charm on us, we are going to be spending more and more on things that Congress just simply doesn't want to touch, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security and other pensions. I know I sound like a broken record, but what Congress has done is taking cuts out of the smallest part of the budget. Yeah. And, and, and it's just not going to get it done through these so-called sequestered right. caps or spending caps. Steve Bell with us. We're going to continue this discussion. Uh, Michael McKee, Charles Gabriel over at uh, uh, Capital Alpha uh, just publishes, and he delicately and with grace links together the DACA immigration debate with tax reform. You know, it doesn't make it a firm linkage, but he says to beleaguered legislators, this is linkable. A, uh, yeah. a member of the House Freedom Caucus, I don't think it was Mark Meadows, uh, um, and I apologize to whoever it was that said it, uh, said yeah. this morning that if he does this DACA thing and he throws it up to Capitol Hill, which apparently he's going to do with this tweet this morning, uh, yeah. it could create a civil war. Among yeah, I saw Stephen King of Iowa. Stephen King of Iowa. You're right. Yes. You're right. I, I, that was in my, I mentioned that on television. And so that's what we'd like to do, folks. We'd like to aggregate in all of the news flow we see. We try to do that every morning on Bloomberg Surveillance. Michael McKee in for David Gurr. I'm Tom Keen. Thrilled you're with us. Tuesday, back to school, I guess tomorrow and maybe Thursday. We're, we're on Hurricane Watch some. as well. Hurricane Watch. Yeah, Irma where are we? Is, update. Update Ir- on Irma. Irma is a five now and florida has declared a state of emergency and orange juice futures are up five percent this oh morning. there you go there's a gap higher uh, a lot of concern yeah. about it hitting the uh, the groves yeah. of uh, southern florida well we don't make jokes about it particularly after what we've witnessed in texas and what we continue to witness in texas as well steve bell with us uh, with the Bipartisan Policy Center, Mr. Bell joining us on our phone lines. Um, I know Mike wants to dive into the tax uh, and fiscal affairs. Steve Bell, who are the Bipartisan Policy Center? Uh, I know it's been around for 10 years, but that's a new name, I would say. Uh, relatively new. Uh, the former majority leaders, uh, Howard Baker, uh, the late Howard Baker, yeah. George Mitchell, Bob Dole, and Tom Daschle got together, two Democrats and two Republicans. Yeah. And they started this and said, what we're going to do is have, we're going to have partisans from both sides. Notice we don't call ourselves the nonpartisan policy center. Right. We, have people here who, we have people here who worked for Clinton. We have people here who worked for Obama. We have people here who worked for the Bushes. And in at least one case, uh, a poor old guy like me who was a Reagan person. So we really have a pretty in- strong internal debate. And we come out with uh, what we think are recommendations that will appeal to both Democrats and Republicans or centrists up on the hill. How many centrists are left? Uh, how many centrists are left on the hill? Olympia Snow's gone. Yeah, well, she's with us. <laughs> uh, the, the, the truth is, for about the last six months, we haven't been overwhelmingly popular because uh, <laughs> the far left and the far right look upon us as kind of skunks. I think. 
but eventually there's going to be, whether it's yeah. led by the more Alexanders of the world, or whether it's led by the Tom Coles of the world, or even yeah. Speaker Ryan, there's going to have to be bipartisanship because yeah. you're not going to get much Mike, done Mike, going they, the way you are. They have their acclaimed bridge builder breakfast. They had a tater fight at a bridge builder <laughs> breakfast. People throwing taters around. We we talk a lot about the dysfunction on Capitol Hill, and everybody is very cynical about what goes on. Going back to your days uh, on the Hill, when you worked for um, Senator Pete Domenici, who would be he was a Republican, but I in 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 the classical sense, uh, definitely a somebody who would be described as something of a centrist, uh, especially yeah, nowadays. Um, is there an institutional tug? from being in the Senate that keeps it from going off the rails in the way that the House has, or is the Senate going the same way? I, I think there's an institutional tug that keeps it from going off the rails. Uh, we can talk about the relationship between Mr. McConnell and Mr. Schumer, the majority and minority leaders, but the fact of the matter is they talk every day. Uh, they sit and make schedules out, and, and they have, at the staff level at least, they have very open conversations. The Senate is a different place, and one of the things you can tell is this. The president has asked them to get rid of the filibuster, and Mr. McConnell and others have said that's not going to happen because that's what makes the Senate, in large part, the Senate. The House has all these great ideas that bubble up. They can pass them with just a majority. They don't have to worry about any lengthy debate. And I can tell you this. Here's how staff reacts to good ideas. Yes, sir, they say. Thank you for that idea. Then they go back and hope in about four days the member forgets it. Wait, that's, uh, excuse me, that sounds like the keen household. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering because uh, we there's so much concern expressed about what's happening uh, with the current occupant of the White House and so much concern expressed for uh, Congress, particularly on the House side. Do you worry about the state of our government or is, is the Senate a bulwark? No, I, I do worry. Uh, I, you know, one of the most thoughtful uh, members of the Senate uh, is Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, who's chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. And when someone that thoughtful and who doesn't really try to get the spotlight that much says that he worries about the competence and stability of the President of the United States, you can see that there is deep, deep uh, misgivings among the Senate Republican Caucus. At some point, that is going to emerge into outright. Um, if not opposition, certainly stubbornness uh, against the president. And I think DACA could be one of those things that uh, shows how oh. balkanized the Republican Party is. Steve Bell, thank you so much. Very, very informative, terrific briefing with the Bipartisan Policy Center. And, of course, it's decades of uh, observing the ballet. On the it Mike, was a different Senate when he served there. Yeah. And, different you know, I, I will state this. And. How odd to have it at the end of the summer. The, the essay of the summer was Senator McCain, without question. Whatever anybody's politics or what the – here's somebody grievously ill with a screen. I mean, do you think, Mike, in any way we can get back to what you first covered in Washington? I don't know how. I don't know what the path is. That's We, we should find somebody who could talk about that, how you, how you get back to the well, way – We've been good people for that. You remember Senator mm -hmm. Arthur Vandenberg, Politics Stops at the Water's Edge? Yeah. He was a very, yeah. very um, yeah. partisan guy and then changed his mind. So it could happen. Yeah.
this is an important uh, interview, not only because he is a, a general in the Army and with his work with Central Command and his work here and work there, and we make light of the fact he went out and in a weak moment got his CFA, a Chartered Financial Analyst. He is the 16th Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, serving under uh, George W. Bush uh, for a, a good half-year space there near the end of the administration. Mark Kimmett joins us. General Kimmett, good morning. Where is Secretary Tillerson? Is he missing in action? Well, he certainly has not been very visible on this issue of North Korea. Uh, I think that diplomacy, and most people believe that diplomacy is what's key here, and uh, the State Department needs to be part of that. Well, within part of that, and we've seen Ambassador Haley at the United Nations. Uh, what what is the why here? Excuse me. And if Secretary Tillerson is invisible, who is carrying forward our diplomacy? Well, it's a hard thing. I would say at this point it is Nikki Haley, uh, but the national security team that is working this, I, I would say it's primarily Department of Defense chief of staff inside the White House. And oddly, the Treasury Secretary as well that are taking the lead on this overall issue. Your uh, former job, Assistant Secretary for Political Military Affairs, is vacant, as are most of the Assistant Secretary's uh, positions in the State Department now. Uh, The President has suggested that we don't need uh, very many diplomats and that um, there needs to be a complete rethink of how we do uh, this, the Department of State. Uh, are we throwing out a baby with the bathwater there, leaving aside the individual issue of North Korea? But uh, do we need all, all the people that we have, that we used to have at State? Well, well certainly we do. And, and before we're too critical on State Department, uh, a few months ago we were having these same concerns about the Department of Defense getting good people into the job. So while it would be good to have a full State Department, uh, especially in the East Asia Bureau right now, uh, I'm pretty confident that the State Department will work this out and get the right people in the job over time. If we do or do not, uh, what, what, from your perspective, should we be doing with the Korean situation now, and I, I go beyond just um, North Korea and its, its nukes uh, to the trade issues with South Korea, reports that the president's going to abrogate the U.S.-South Korea free trade agreement. Uh, how, how should we be handling what's going on in Northern Asia? Well, at this time, we probably need more allies than fewer allies. And some of these concerns uh, that have been brought up about the trade relations and such uh, this may be the wrong time to be doing that. The The situation with North Korea is grave, and it can't be something that we handle unilaterally. It's an issue, as Nikki Haley said yesterday, that needs the entire world to come together. And to do that, we not only need allies, but we need diplomats to, to promote those allies. How did you react to the uh, essay of, uh, uh, of, of John McCain of a few days ago? where he's asking for a Congress that gets back to rules of order. This interesting linkage of military service with our legislative and executive sectors, you have great experience in this. Do we need to get a Congress back to regular order? Well, what we need is a Congress that can get into the business of passing legislation uh, for any number of reasons. The current Congress is locked up um, on a significant number of issues, and 
the problem when you don't have a functioning Congress, it's the executive branch that seems to be carrying the lift. And that's not necessarily the system of checks and balances that have, have served this country so well. You, you have a storied career uh, uh, across our military, the 2nd Ranger Battalion, the 8th Infantry Decision, uh, Division, rather, the 1st Armored Division, maybe was your focus. Is the Army as exhausted as it appears the Navy is with the criticism of these two major naval accidents in the Pacific? Can you bring that over to our other military branches? Well, first of all, my career isn't that storied. I've got a hundred guys just like me. Now, having said that, the Army has been fighting continuously since 2001, and before that time was spent uh, yes. many, many years in the Balkans. Uh, I don't think the personnel are tired as much as the equipment is tired. Interesting. If you take a look at the th- you take a look at the three major budget categories of the military. You've got personnel, operations, and procurement. Uh, we're spending a lot of money on procurement, which is necessary. We're spending a lot of money on personnel, and that's important. What I'm concerned about is that the weapons are getting older, the yeah. equipment is getting older, our rivals are bringing on new technology better than us, and uh, we need to yeah. take a hard look at the current state of the military and its ability to do what the president asks. I'm going to say and be polite, General, 39 years ago, not 40. What was your first day like at Camp Stanley in Korea? Uh, it, it was interesting because, as you probably remember, just a few months prior to that was the famous axe incident where the Americans went in to try to cut down a tree inside the demilitarized zone, and, and the North Korean guards there took uh, killed a couple of our soldiers there and a couple of our officers brutally and without reason. So we woke up every morning fully understood that, fully understanding that we could be at war the next day, and uh, that's fairly sobering. I've actually been to Camp Stanley and looked over the DMZ. As uh, were you is carrying a, a weapon? A scary. No, I was carrying binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is a scary thought right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were there, and from your perspective now, should we be afraid of North Korea, or is this uh, a, a sort of high stakes diplomatic game? Well, what concerns me most. That more than anything else, is the risk of miscalculation. Uh, it is not necessarily an issue of military versus military. The people of America don't need to worry about a nuclear war anytime soon. But um, I, I, my personal view is I don't think we understand Kim Jong-un as well as we should, and we may take actions that are unnecessarily provocative and cause him to do something irrational and irretrievable. What, what what actions um, would be irretrievable, uh, short of obviously uh, <laughs> dropping a nuclear weapon? But is there is there some red line at this point? Well, let, let's go back to the fundamentals. This is much like Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. What what Kim Jong Un is saying is, "Get off my lawn." He just wants people to leave him alone. He doesn't want to be threatened. He doesn't want his regime threatened. He is developing nuclear weapons, to my view, for a purely defensive capacity and will not give them up. Uh, He's seen what happened to leaders that gave up the nuclear weapons, like Gaddafi and Saddam, uh, both of who did not end up well. He wants to keep his party in power. He wants to keep his regime stabilized. 
he doesn't have a a view of taking over the region, spreading a revolutionary ideology. They, that's, this is why we call mm-hmm. it the Hermit Kingdom. He just wants to be left alone. Unfortunately, he has nukes, and that doesn't give us the option to leave him alone. Yeah. General, thank you so much. General Kimmett with us. This is really what we like to do best in surveillance, to have Admiral Stravitas and then General Kimmett with us. is important perspective as we look to uh, Korea and our other military affairs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.